Father, we want to see wonderful things from your word. We want you to come this morning and to be our teacher. And we would ask that you would remove any barrier or obstacle that's in our heart that keeps us from hearing the word taught. We pray that we would all sit at the foot of the word and that I would get out of the way and that you, through your word, would speak to us. And you would tell us the truth that we need to hear. Help us to understand how to navigate through this world, what our purpose is in the church, and help us to know how we can better give you glory for your sake and the health of your body here at Calvary. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if there was one word that would describe the last year and a half at Calvary Bible Church, it would be the word change uh, or transition. Um, We've changed pastor teachers in this last year and a half. We've added three new pastors and four interns. We've seen changes in our senior adult ministries and our music ministries. We're awaiting God's provision of the man who would be our music shepherd and pastor. We've seen changes in the Sunday school, and we'll see even more this morning. We've seen changes in our outreach ministry and our missions with our elders, changes in the counseling, some additions and enhancements to our website. We've seen additions and changes in the student ministries. We've seen the birth of a singles ministry and on and on. and I mean, the list goes on and on of the things that have happened in the last year and a half. It's an e-ticket ride down the fast lane for sure. And sometimes change is difficult, is it not? Sometimes it's tough to transition through because there are hiccups along the way. There are bumps in the road. And sometimes change, the thought of it, scares people. Because there's a great deal of comfort and familiarity. If things are familiar to us, then we're comfortable. If things are unfamiliar, if we're moving into uncharted territory, all of a sudden it's not so easy. All of a sudden we're not sure of the future and what's going to happen. And it's usually with an unwelcome attitude that we visit change. And I want to I say surely that, that, that consistency is a good thing, is it not? Stability and consistency are good. I mean, think about your Christian life for a second, and think about how important it is to you that there are these stable factors. God never changes. His promises never change. Our standing before Him is unchanging. Our salvation is secure and immovable. His love never fades or shifts. He's always in complete control. His word never fails. And his will is always the same. Is that not encouraging? I mean, that's the anchor of our hope, isn't it? To know that there is a fixed eternal reality that never changes and rests unmoved. Even in the psalm we read this morning, that God is a rock, that is encouraging. No doubt about it. If there's no consistency and there's no stability in Christianity, then we have hoped in vain. Because what's to say that you're going to be saved tomorrow if God is not the same? What's to say that you can trust the Word of God and have all the wisdom and discernment that you need to live the life that God's called you to if He changes? We can't be sure of anything. But consistency doesn't necessarily ensure stability, does it? I mean, we can be consistently apathetic, can't we? We can be consistently lethargic, consistently equivocating and vacillating, shallow, unfaithful. We want stability, but stability does not always come with consistency in certain things. We want to be stable. That is to say that we want to, be, we want to have a firm foundation. We want to have an unmoved commitment to what's true. We want to have depth. We want to have faithfulness. And the point that I, I want to make at the offset here is that it's not enough to have consistency for consistency's sake in a church. There's more to it. We have to have consistency in the right things in order to be stable. And if we don't have stability, then we have to change whatever it takes to arrive at that place. This is what I want you to see, that we can't grow as a church and become more healthy and more into the image that God has called us to 
if we don't change. Because we have to change in order to remove those barriers that keep us from being all that God has called us to be. Change is a good thing. It is a good thing. It's uncertain for sure, but it's good. Let me, let me illustrate this to you. Think about the fact that the eternal fixed principles that I just mentioned and how unmoved they are and how much of a hope they are transfer into the life of a Christian who is always undergoing change. Think about it for a second. Your salvation changes your heart. Your adoption changes your identity. Your redemption changes your spiritual indebtedness. Your regeneration changes your nature. Your justification changes your standing before God legally. Your sanctification changes your character. Resurrection changes your body. Glorification changes your surroundings. Repentance changes your thinking and your conduct. Hope changes your expectations. Meditation changes your perspective. And prayer changes your attitude. I mean, all the things that we do and are as Christians are always changing. And they're always, hopefully, moving towards more stability. And we want to be consistent in those things because we want to be stable, but... We have to make changes to get there. Every facet of your life as a Christian is in a state of flux. And that's a good thing if you're heading the right way. It means you're alive. It means you're healthy. Being dead means you don't move. that's, That's the clinical definition of deadness, is that there's no movement. Now, if you're not changing and making progress for the better, then something's wrong. Something is desperately wrong. Now, follow my thought here for a second. If we as a church are made up of people whose lives are always constantly changing, then is it not fair to say that we as a church should expect to be also constantly changing as well? Yes, right? We as a church will be always in a state of fluctuation, always in a transition. Now, that doesn't mean that we're always going to go through pastor-teachers. That doesn't mean we're always going to have significant and major overhauls, that things are going to look absolutely 100% different one year to the next. That doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that if we are going to be healthy as the church, then we have to move ahead and forge by changing those things that keep us from fulfilling God's calling for us as a church. That's why we're here. Now, consider how our church changes. I'm just curious, by a show of hands, how many of you have been here new in the last year and a half? How many of you are new to our church? Put up your hand. So that's where you all sit. Okay. (laughs) A lot of people. There's a lot of people here new to our church. The church's membership changes. People will leave, but people come. We have about 350, 400 new people to our church in the last year and a half. That's a lot of people. A lot of you are new. And our, our membership is changing. The maturity of our people is changing, is it not? Were you, are you at the same place where you were last year? No. Hopefully you've grown. Hopefully you've seen some progress in your faith. Hopefully you've, you can look back and see how God has worked in your life. And a year ago, you're much different today than you were then. And that's a good thing. The needs of our people change, don't they? We live in a culture that is constantly vacillating, constantly compromising. And the needs of people are constantly changing. Your needs are changing. You might walk in here one week in a whole set of circumstances and your life be turned upside down between, before the next Sunday. And you come in with different needs all the time. Physical needs, financial needs, spiritual needs, emotional needs, all that. You're constantly changing. And the leadership changes in the church. The church's leadership is constantly changing. The people who minister to you, the people who pour into you, the people who speak the word of God to you, they're all changing constantly because we're all trying to grow. We're all trying to improve. There's always going to be, in other words, transition. 
There's always going to be, if our church is going to be healthy in the life of this this body, there's going to be an ongoing uh, change and an ongoing metamorphosis of what you see here. A metamorphosis, hopefully, that's not becoming more like the world, but becoming more like Jesus Christ. That's our goal. Things are going to constantly adjust. And things are going to adjust in the church because God is always working. If God is not at work in the church, then the church is going to die. The church is going to be just flaccid. Because God is always at work. He was at work in the Old Testament, do you remember? He took his people out of the bondage of Egypt and moved them to a, to a land. And, and remember, they were always in transition. And in the New Testament, you find the same thing. The whole book of Acts is written as a transitionary book. They even had to call a council together of the elders and the apostles to figure out how to handle the transition because it was so much. The church is always going to undergo a a change and a a transformation because God's always at work. And until we reach heaven, we will always be in this process. When we get to heaven, we won't need a change anymore, will we? Because we're going to be perfect. We'll be exactly what God has called us to be. But until then, we're going to constantly be adjusting. Change is a good thing. It's a very good thing. And you have a reason to be concerned if there is change with no stability or direction or purpose. But if the right factors are in place as we move ahead to change to be all the more what God has called us to be, then we will grow. We can't rely on how we've always done it to be our foundation, and we can't hope that stagnation would be our goal. We have to go back to the written word of God and we have to learn from him and recover and recapture what his purpose is for the church. And that's exactly what I want to do this morning from Ephesians 4. I'd like you to open your Bible there and meet me in chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. The book of Ephesians is actually written to a local church, a church in Ephesus, and it's written to show specifically how God has designed the church to be in the world. To say it another way, it's, it's the church's instruction manual. It's a, it's a perfect book. Paul begins in Ephesians, starting from the, the breathtaking view of God's plan for the church in eternity past, that God wrote your name down in the Lamb's Book of Life and knew that you would be part of the church, and He in time set out to save you. As the unfolding drama of redemption drew near to you, in time God rescued you from your sin and death, and He saved you and put you into His kingdom. Paul talks about that in chapters 1 and 2. In chapters uh, 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6, he talks about how this reality unfolds for us in the church. He gives sort of a sweeping panoramic view of what the church is to look like in a hostile, godless world, right where we are today, right here in Burbank. By the time we arrive in chapter 4, he's just concluded three monumental chapters of solid theology about our position in Christ. And chapters 4 through 6, right where we're starting, begin to unfold for us how we're to live out our position in Christ, practically speaking. And he starts with a plea to walk in a manner that is consistent with our calling. You can see that in verse 1. He says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you or plead with you or urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. He says, I want you to walk worthy. I want you to have stability in your walk with God. But watch this. He unfolds and unpacks that. By saying, I want you to have your foundation laid in verses 4 to 6, the things that are stable. And then that's going to have corporate ramifications. That you as a church are going to have a corporate reality fixed to you. And then you personally, starting in verse 17 to the end of the chapter, verse 32, are going to have an individual and personal ramification of this as well in your stability. And the point is this. This is what I find so interesting about this text. That he lays out for us the foundations and the pillars that make up who we are and what we believe, 
and then says, here's how we are always changing as a church, and on top of that, how you will always be changing as a Christian. This is exactly what he does in the text. And he unfolds for us an excellent treatment for how to view change. What I want to say is that the health of the church and the health of your Christian life depend solely on us being rooted in the right foundation. And what it holds our Christian lives and our churches together never changes, but at the same time, you and I as Christians and as a church are always in a state of change so that we become more stable. That's what I want you to see here. And that's what Paul is going to drive home so hard. But specifically, in this text, in verses 4 through 16, Paul lays out three principles that govern the way that you and I should look at change. As we're moving ahead and forging ahead to to find stability in our Christian lives and in our church, Paul lays out three principles that will govern that. And I want to unfold them for you so that you can see how we can move ahead and how we can be more effective as a church. And what I want you to see is that change is a good thing. Remember that. Number one. Change is a good thing, number one, if you build on the right foundation. If you build on the right foundation. Look at verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is a, actually a creed taken from the first century church. They articulated a creed that they could recite and memorize to remind them of the things that they're anchored to. They're held together and held and bound fast by these principles that he just laid out, and there's seven of them. There's seven foundation stones that provide for us a bedrock of permanency. That's what he's going to unfold for us here. They're the source of our stability. They're the source of our unity. And we're going to move through them rather briefly, but I want you to see what they are. They're so critical to the Christian life. And I also want you to notice that they all come specifically from the Trinity. Some come from the Son, some come from the Father, and some come from the Spirit. Let's look first at those given to us by the Spirit. It says in verse 4, there is one body. One body. This is a reference to the body of Christ, the church. And what he's saying here is that you and I, in Christ, if we're saved, are all part, because of the work of the Spirit of God in our lives, are all part of a living, vital, breathing organism. Regardless of who you are, regardless of your age, regardless of your marital or social status, regardless of your sex or your color, as long as you believe in Jesus, you are part of this spiritual body, this spiritual reality which the Holy Spirit has put you into, which leads to his second foundation stone, that we have one spirit. There is one spirit and we have partaken from him. This is a reference, verse 4, to the Holy Spirit, who's the one that actually placed us into this body of Christ. God, the Holy Spirit, when you believe, took you out of the kingdom of darkness and placed you into the kingdom of his beloved son and put you into the body of Christ, which is the church. You became a part of a universal and invisible reality called the church when you believed. He's also, the Spirit is, the one who we rely on for power and strength. Also coming from the Spirit, thirdly, is one hope. We all have together in Christ one hope, verse 4. There is one hope of our calling. This, this means the salvation that we enjoy and share is guaranteed, that it's fixed. It won't move because the Holy Spirit is the seal and the guarantee of what He's promised. It will come to us. All of what He has promised and all that God is for us in Jesus will come to us because the Holy Spirit guarantees it. That's, that's strong. It's fixed. It's unmoved. Then we see the things that come to us from the Son. Verse 5. There is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. One Lord. This is a reference to the Lord Jesus himself. That we have one Lord, and he is ours. 
And we are His. He is the Savior who died. He is the Savior who died to save us, to redeem us from our sins. He took our sins on Himself on the cross, endured God's wrath for us, and gave us His life. He's also our head whose leadership we follow as a church. He's ours. We have one faith. Now, this is, this is not, I don't want you to get con- this confused with the faith that we exercise in God. This is a technical term. Literally in the Greek, it says, one, the faith. Uh, or, or literally, one body of content and doctrine that we all believe. It, it is one commitment to truth. It is one body of doctrine in the scriptures. The scriptures are the anchor that holds us together. We are not all vacillating and not knowing the direction. We have the scriptures. We have the Spirit of God. We have the Son of God. We have ultimate hope. We're baptized into one body. We have the faith. This is the truth that we believe, as Jude 3 says. He says, I I wrote to you to appeal to you that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. He's not talking about the faith that you believe with. He's talking about the faith that you believe in. The truth, the body of doctrine that you're committed to. The third thing coming from Christ is called one baptism. We all have and share one baptism. And this, I wrestled with this. I don't think that this is a spiritual baptism. I think that that's implied when he says one body, that we were all immersed spiritually into the body of Christ. That's, that's more the connotation of verse 4. I think what he's talking about here in verse 5 is water baptism. Now, I'm not, he's not saying that the water baptism saves you. He's not saying that it applies some sort of grace to you. What he is saying here is that all of us have a common declaration of faith in Christ and our own personal testimony of a commitment to and trust in Him. Every single one of us in this room, if you're in Christ, has a testimony to proclaim. And that is first punctuated with a baptism, a baptism in the water that identifies what you have done in trusting Christ. All of us have this testimony. All of us confess this truth. And then he shows us what we receive from the Father. Look down at verse 7. Excuse me, verse 6. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is just a generic way of saying we also have the Father. We have the Father who is, He rules over all. He works through us and dwells in us. He's come to be our Father through Jesus Christ. And what what Paul is saying here, and I, I moved through those kind of briefly, to show you here that what he's saying is we all have stability. The issue is not Where do we find stability? The issue is that stability has already been laid. The foundation is already there for you. All that we have to do in a church when we're considering change or we consider what to do with a ministry or we consider what we should be involved with, it's already predicated and built on the firm foundation that I just read to you. All of those things, the Lord Jesus is ours. Our common confession is ours. We own that. We as a church, that's what holds us and binds us together. That's what makes us stable. That's what makes us strong is the fact that we are all one in these things. These are fixed realities that never change. They're the source of our spiritual life and our corporate identity. And the first thing that we need to do when we think about church and we think about where we're going and what we're trying to do and how we want to accomplish ministering to you and you ministering to us is to think through, are we building on the right foundation? Try building on a house, building a house with no foundation. What do you get? You get a mess, right? It's going to crumble. It'll teeter for a little while and it'll crumble. It's like building on the sand, to borrow analogy from our Lord. The source of our stability is already laid. And the issue is not, do we find some stability in ourselves? We have the stability laid for us, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3. Listen to this. He says, as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. 
For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Our foundation is fixed. And and you say, okay, why is that important? I'll tell you why. Because the church of today is jettisoning her foundation and running to other sources of stability. They're running to marketing research polls. They're handing out surveys and saying, what do you want? I mean, what would you like? Would you like, you know, this, would you like fireworks? How about a little laser light with dry ice? Would that be cool? We don't do that. When we come to consider a ministry and we think about the church and what we should be as a church, we go to the written authoritative word of God. That's what we do. We don't go to secular business principles and import them in the church and say, well, gee, I mean, that works for the corporation. I mean, look at Xerox or look at IBM or look at Microsoft. I mean, that's how they do it. So why don't we do church like they do business and then we'll be successful? If that kind of success is what you want. No, we're not going to go look at those people to learn from them how to do secular business in God's church. We're not going to go to pragmatic methods, which people run to today, and say, well, if it works, do it. I mean, if it gets the result that you want, people in your church, if it gets the result that you want, then do it. And the end justifies the means. That's, that's just a fancy way of saying, if it gets you what you want, then it doesn't matter how good or bad the tool you use to get it is. It's just as long as you get what you want, you can manipulate, cajole, fight, kick, get whatever you want. We're not going to do that. People do research. People, people think that, well, we need to bring entertainment into the church. We need, to, we need to entertain people because they're limited, because their attention span is 20 seconds, because they're not going to respond if they don't, if they don't see you know, a, a flash, flashing uh, you know, scenario up front. We're not going to manipulate people's emotions. We're not going to do any of those things. We're going to bedrock ourselves in the infallible Word of God. That's what we're built on here. That's why it says on that marquee out front that we are a New Testament church built on the infallible Word of God. This is our hope and this is our bedrock. That's our starting point. So when we consider a ministry and we consider anything that we would do as a church, I want you to know, and I want you to do this too, that we have to build on the right foundation. We have to build on the right foundation. Now, as a wise builder has to construct on stable ground, he also has to take inventory of his toolbox. He also, once, he's got the, once he recognizes the place where he should build and that it's stable ground, he has to know what he's going to use to construct what he's trying to build. And that leads us to the essence of number two, that if we're going to be effective and healthy as a church, we have to utilize the right resources. Utilize the right resources. Verse 7. But to each one of us, Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. It's a mouthful for sure, isn't it? Let me break it down to you and show you what it means. Verse 4 to 6, he's just said, okay, here's your stability. Here's your foundation. Here's everything that you build on. And it it brings us unity. It brings us oneness. It brings us hope and and an anchor. But he says now in verse 7 to 11 that we have in us grace individually given. That, that, That together we have one specific foundation, but each one of us has been given resources. Each one of us has been given grace. And he further defines these resources in the end of verse 8 when he says that he, referring to Christ, gave gifts to men. Now, this is a reference to spiritual gifts. This is spiritual gifts, and I'm going to show you how profound this is in just a second. He gave to us as a church spiritual gifts. That's the grace that he's talking about, that God gave us the resources of spiritual gifts from himself. 
And he even lists some of those gifts in verse 11. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastor teachers. That's not a comprehensive list. He's just listing off here's, here's the resources that God has given here and here. On the one hand, he's given these. On the other hand, he's given these. There's a whole myriad of resources that he's given for the health and the edification of the church. But I want to show you something profound here. I saw this and I sat, sat back in my chair and just paused and wondered and worshipped. And I think it is so profound. What you have to grasp first is that the resources that he supplies to us are spiritual gifts. But let me show you how they come to you and let me show you the sufficiency of them. Ready? Look at verse 8. Look back to verse 8. Therefore, when it says, what says? He's quoting the Old Testament. And he says that the Old Testament says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave, I'm going to come back to that word, he gave gifts to men. Paul is quoting and applying to us Psalm 68. Now, I want you to hold your finger in Ephesians and turn there. You've got to see this from Psalm 68. Go ahead and turn to Psalm 68, which is a profound cross verse. In the psalm, God is pictured as a warrior. He's considered a triumphant king and a victor who has come to vanquish his enemies. And the result is blessing to his people. The psalm is just spilling over with praise about how glorious God is and how his gifts that flow to us are great because of the conquest that he has won by his victory. He has absolute victory. And let's look at verse 18. Verse 18 has our verse. It says, You have ascended on high... You have led captive your captives. You have received, I'll come back to that word, gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. What he's saying here is that God is a conquering victor and that he has a conquest that he has won. And here's the picture. Watch this. God has descended out of heaven and come to defeat his enemies. And once he has defeated his enemies and plundered them, he's gone back to heaven and received all the, the spoil and the treasures and the plunder from his victory and conquest. Remember that word received. And in ancient times, if you won a great battle or a great war, you would go into the city that you conquered and pillage it. You would take from that city everything that was valuable as your own. And as you were marching back to your own city, you would pull behind you a captive of captives. Those are prisoners of war. And you would also pull behind you these long carts filled with all the trophies, all the spoil, everything that you've gained from your victory. That's, that's the context in which verse 18 is found. Now, go back to Ephesians. I want to show you this. Because Paul is applying this passage specifically to... Us. And he's referring to a specific event of triumph that Christ had. What do you think he's referring to there? He's referring to his atonement. He's referring to his work on the cross that's finished. Think about this for a second. Verse 8. He, Jesus, ascended on high. He led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Here's the picture. Jesus himself was in heaven. He descended out of heaven. He came down to the lower parts of the earth, it says. That's just a fancy way of saying to the heart of the earth. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He came, he descended out of heaven into the lower parts of the earth, accomplished redemption for us, and then went back to heaven with the great spoil and the treasures of his conquest. And when he was in heaven, he received from the Father all of the treasures and the trophies and the spoil and the plunder of his victory. 
This is what he's referring to. And he says that Christ defeated his enemies. Christ came to conquer sin. Christ came to conquer death. He came to conquer hell and the devil and his angels. But that's not all. The, captive, the captivity that he led from its captivity is you and me. The people that he brought with him is us. He went into the, he went into the enemy's uh, back, back door, came in and took captives. And the captives of the enemy he brought to his own kingdom. And that's you. You're a captive. In some real sense, Christ came to recapture you. When you were sold into the bondage of sin, he came. And his great victory made you a captive of himself. And he brought you back. And now this is, this is what is so profound here. You ready for this? You say, what's the connection with all this? Christ rose from the dead. Christ ascended to the Father. And in fulfillment of Psalm 68, he received gifts from his Father. But the word received is not the word that Paul uses here. What's the word that Paul uses at the end of verse 8? He did what? He gave. Now you say, hmm, what's he doing? Is Paul changing the Old Testament? No. He's applying the Old Testament promise to Jesus, and he's taking it a step further. Watch this. In ancient times, when you were a conquering king and you brought in all of your carts of all of your treasures, you would divide the treasures among your people. Everybody would get a part. Watch this. Christ, when he ascended on high to his father and received gifts from his father, he turned around and to the church gave you the plunders and the spoil of his victory in the form of spiritual gifts. That is profound. That is amazing because what that means is the spiritual gifts with which you have been entrusted are the precious treasures of the plunder of Christ's victory on the cross. He purchased spiritual gifts for you. And when he ascended on high, he dispatched his Holy Spirit who came and gave them to you when you believed. Isn't that amazing? You want to talk about sufficient resources? You want to talk about all that we need as a church to be healthy? You have them all. Everything that you need to be all that we should be as a church is sitting right in your lap. All the treasures and all the things that God has entrusted to you for the health and the stability of our church pertain to your involvement. The use of your spiritual gift. You are a steward of a treasure. A treasure that cost Jesus his life. It's the plunder of his atonement and it's yours. Think about that for a second. Think about that. Think about the reality that you have this awesome treasure And let me ask you a piercing question. Where is it sitting? Is it sitting? Is it collecting dust? Is it on the shelf? Look at my treasure. Isn't it great? Isn't it great what I can do? Look at that. They're given to us to meant to be used. They're given to us to be resources for the glory of God and the health of the church. That's what he's saying here. You build on the right foundation, but as you build, you don't run to some other secular or man-made resources. You use the resources that God has given to you specifically when you believe through the Holy Spirit. In your spiritual gifts. I love that. I love that. What you have in the form of a spiritual gift is a sacred trust. And these resources he bestowed on you for the building of our church to accomplish his purposes and to reach his goals. And we're going to look at those goals in just a minute. But I want you to stop and just think about for a second the fact that when it comes to vision and direction and purpose and change of as a church, the resources that we are going to rely on are those given to you by God. And everything that we do as a church has to pertain to your involvement in ministry. That's what we're talking about. It's not, it's not that the pastors are the paid professionals who do everything. 
It's that the pastors come and set the vision for you and give you direction so that you can go and minister to the glory of God for the health of each other. All of us are to shoulder the responsibility to work so that God gets glory in the church and his wonderful, wonderful stewardship is being wisely invested. Look at some of the gifts again that he gave. Verse 11. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets. Those are people whose God used uniquely to found and establish the church. They're the people that God used to, to begin the whole church way back when. He says he also gave some as evangelists. Those are That's better understood as people who are church planters. Those are people who not only, now that the church has been started, they spread, they go abroad and they spread churches. They start churches in local areas. And then he says we have pastor teachers, uh, pastors and teachers. It's better understood as kind of a, there's a hyphen instead of the and. It's pastor slash teacher. Uh, it, it's, it's a dual way of describing his role, um, the man who's the pastor teacher. And he says, we've, he, the Lord himself has given to the church these unique treasures, and, and, and the list could go on. He could talk about the gift of helps. He could talk about the gift of administration, the gift of, uh, of you know, teaching. All the gifts that are listed in Peter and Romans are all gifts given to us for the edification of the church. There's some to found the church, some to establish new churches, and some for the health and the well-being of the long-term goals of the church. And so for the rest of the section, what the Apostle Paul does then is show us the goals for which we should strive. He says, okay, here's the foundation. Be sure you build on it. Here's the resources. Make sure you use them because they're sufficient. And then he says, and pursue these goals. What are the goals of our church? Is it to have a big church? Is it to have a big edifice? Is it to have a lot of people? Is it to be uh, entertaining? Is it to be... What, what is the purpose of our church? Paul lays out seven of them right here, and I'll go through these briefly. Verse 12, pursue the right goals. Number three, verse 12. He says, all of this for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. What a profound set of results. Wouldn't you be glad if that was our church? These are the changes that we need to move towards. These are the things that we need to do in our church and get any barrier that sits in the way gone. We need to pursue these goals, and there's seven of them. Let me give them to you just briefly. Number one, that we would be an equipped church. An equipped church. Look down at verse 12. He says, this is all done for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. That's you. The, the equipping of the saints is anyone who's a believer. If you are a believer, then, then the leadership of the church is responsible to invest in you. And you are responsible to, to max out at full capacity in your service to the Lord. It's our, it's our role and our desire that you would realize your full potential in Christ and you would serve Him and we would evaluate you for ministry. We would enlist you to the proper ministries. We would empower you by giving you all the resources that you need. We would entrust ministry to you and then we would encourage you while you're doing it. That's our goal for you. This means that my role as a pastor is not to do all the work, but to, as the text says, equip or help or sharpen and strengthen you to do the work. The idea is, uh, the word equip there is the idea of a net that's got a hole in it. 
And, the, and equipping is the idea of coming and sewing that net back up so that fish don't escape as you're fishing. And, and he says, if, if, there's, if there's holes in your church's net, repair them so that it's functioning effectively. Our goal is to set vision for you. Our goal is to facilitate your ministry, not to do all the ministry. We don't want to do all the ministry. We want to equip you to do the ministry so that God is glorified through the use of your gift. Secondly, he says that we would be a strong church. Back in verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. I want to key in on that phrase, the building up. In the same way that a human body can't be strong unless each part of the body is working effectively, neither can the spiritual body of Christ be strong and healthy and effective unless all of you and all of us are working together effectively, playing each our part. Think about this for a second. How incapacitated are you when uh, one of your body parts goes down? Uh, think about your eye, for example. I was driving on the freeway the other day, and uh, my air conditioner shot out a little speck of something right into my eye. It's like it has a magnet to my eye, just right there. And I'm driving, and I'm like, oh, man, you know, and I'm trying to get this thing out of my eye, and I'm looking in the mirror, and I'm, I'm glad I didn't kill somebody. But, but when my eye goes, I, I'm incapacitated. Or think about the fact that, um, you know, when you, you get up in the middle of the night, go to the bathroom, and you've got about a half an hour left of sleep, and you're coming back to the bed, and it's looking nice and warm, and you stub your toe on the, on the corner, and you're feeling it, you're not going back to sleep. You know that. You know the 15 minutes are just ticking by while you're, you're putting ice on your foot. If, if part of your body goes down, if your knee goes out, if, if, you just pick it. If you get the plague, like, like everybody's been having this, this time of the year, you go down, you can't function at max capacity. You're hindered. And the same thing is true with us. That if we don't use our spiritual bodies, as it were, if we just sit around and don't exercise, we don't use our spiritual gifts to the glory of the Lord, we become weak. Entropy sets in. Decay. Weakness. Your body's not able to perform at maximum capacity, maximum efficiency, if you're not taking care of every part. And I just wonder, as I look at the churches across the world, and as I look at our church and ask the question of my own heart, how are we doing in the use of our spiritual gifts? How are we doing as leaders to help you, and how are you doing as, as uh, saints to fulfill your ministry? Um, think about a couch, somebody sitting on a couch, and, and it's okay that the mouth is working and the throat is working, and the arm maybe works to put the remote control, but if the rest of it is just sitting there, you've got a couch potato. Um, or a person who's paralyzed, maybe. And as the body of Christ... There is no reason for paralysis. We have everything that we need in Christ, all the resources that he has given to us freely as the result of his atonement to do his work. Number three, his third goal for us is that we would be a unified church. Back in verse 13, he says, we do this until we all attain to the unity of the faith. That's going to be heaven. Until we all attain to unity. His goal is that we would be a unified church. And this, this term, unity of the faith, references our, our oneness. It goes back to what verses 4 through 6 says, that we are one, we are one, we are one, so we should be one together. All of us should be striving towards the same goal, having the same purpose, committed to the same mission. We should be relying on the same resources, knowing how we're going to get there. We don't need to fight and kick and scream and cajole and manipulate each other to get what we want because we have selfish ambitions. We need to strive for the, the unity that God has called us to. We need to be joined together, not having an agenda, but focusing on God's word. Now you say, what's the source of our unity? Is it opinion poll? Is it consensus? Is it whatever's popular at the moment? No. The answer is right there in the text. The unity of what? The faith. There's that word again. 
It's, it, it's two words. The faith. It, it's again a technical term that refers to the body of content that we believe. The scriptures, it takes us all the way back to our foundation. Our foundation is the word of God. And so we build on that foundation and we are arriving together at a cohesive unity in the faith. We don't come and set aside doctrinal differences and embrace one another in non-judgmental love, whatever that is. The only source of the unity that we can ever hope to have is when we start with the scriptures. And to the degree that our, our doctrinal distinctives are clear in the scriptures, our unity is clear. If we trash the scriptures, we don't have unity. Because unity comes from the faith. So we're striving for unity, but unity from what is true, that's revealed in the word of God. Fourthly, he says that we would be a knowledgeable church. And I love this. Verse 13, that we would be a knowledgeable church. He says, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now this term knowledge is interesting. It's not, it's not a, what you might think at first glance the word knowledge is. It's, the word is epignosis. It's the idea of an experiential knowledge. It implies that you have a proper understanding of things true and things divine, but it also means that it doesn't stay there in your head. It translates into your life that brings you into more of an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying here. He says, I want you to know Christ. I want you to know all that you need to know about Christ, but I want you to know Him. If your knowledge of Christ uh, falls short of intimacy with Him, then it's not the kind of knowledge Paul's talking about. And each of us in our Christian lives, aren't we striving to know Christ better? Aren't we striving for a deeper and more intimate relationship with Him? And if that's true, then that's going to spill over into our relationships with each other. And we as a church are going to know Him better. You know, in Revelation chapter 3, the church of Laodicea, that Christ wanted to spit out of His mouth, He says... Um, I stand at this door and knock. And most people think that's, well, I'm standing at the door of your heart and knocking. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about, I'm standing at the door outside of your church. And I'm knocking. Here you are inside. You're worshiping. You're singing. You're doing all this stuff. And I'm on the outside, not in. He says, and I'm standing outside your church and I'm waiting for you to open. Are you going to open? You're going to open and you're going to invite me in? If you come in, I'll have fellowship with you corporately and you with me. I'll sit down and dine with you and you with me. That's a corporate identity. He says, I'm standing outside the church and I'm waiting for you to let me in. But as it is, you're a Christless church, he says to them. The reality is Christ wants to have not only a personal relationship with us, but a personal relationship with us corporately, as expressed when we get together on Sundays and whenever. It's a wonderful truth. Fifthly, we're to be a Christ-like church. And this is also in verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, here it is, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. This is a simple way of saying this. Here you are as a kid. Um, and you guys ever seen, if you have boys or girls, um, which is really all you can have, uh, if, you have <laughs> if you have a boy, does he ever get in dad's shoes and walk around, look, dad, look at that, and he gets three steps and he fumbles and he falls over? The idea here is that you would fill up and fit those shoes. The idea is you have these shoes, Christ's shoes to fill, fill them. And what he says is you have to grow up and progress and mature in order to do that. And this is a great truth, and it's a simple principle that's illustrated like this. We're all a part of the body, the body of Christ. It's a wonderful metaphor. And when all of us are doing our job, Christ is on display. He's visible. You can see him. Not in the sense that you can look at him, but you can see the manifestation of Christ who had all of the gifts. 
you can see him on display when the church is doing its job. And let me illustrate it another way. Sometimes we think of people who have the gift of evangelism and the gift of mercy and the gift of helps, let's say. And we think that the person gifted in evangelism is to do all the visitation assignments. And the person with the gift of mercy goes to the hospitals, and the person with the gift of help sets up when nobody's here. That's not at all the idea. The idea is those people do those things, but they lead the way. They set the bar, and we keep up with them. That's the idea. The idea is like this. I have a new intern. His name's Chris. He's, uh, you'll see him uh, in the next couple of weeks. He's a guy that I've known for about three years. And he is a guy that I worked with at the hospital when I did physical therapy. And we were, um, uh, we'd do two peas together. We would go in and there's a person who needed assistance more than one person could provide. And so he and I went in together. And it was always great because I'd let him go in first and I'd just stand back and watch him. Because he's very uniquely gifted in the area of mercy. And I would just stand there and I'd watch him. And then I would learn from him. And I would take in everything that he did. And then when I went to my patient, I would try to be that way. Because doesn't God call me to be merciful? He does, right? But he imparts a unique measure of grace to some people to help sharpen and build us up where we're weak so that we're more like Christ in that area. Same thing with the gift of evangelism. Somebody has the gift of evangelism. We don't say, well, go do all the visitation. We say, no, let me go with you and let me watch you. And then when I do it, you help me. You critique me. You, you, you work with me. How do I do it? You're gifted in this area. And I want to be more faithful to God's calling for me to evangelize because of my time with you. Doesn't God call every believer to evangelize? He does. And certain people in the church are uniquely gifted by God as stewards of the atonement of Christ and the plunder of it to help us, to sharpen us so that we fit those shoes. That's the idea. He says, I want you to mature into a full man in the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. You fill his shoes. That's what he's saying. It's profound reality. Sixth, he says we would be a discerning church. He wants us to be discerning. Verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children. He implied that from the verse before. Tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. He implies in here that in the church, we're going to face some pretty hard times. We're going to face people who are going to come in here, even from among the church itself, and they're going to rise up, and they're going to spout off false doctrine, and they're going to try to lead people astray. They're going to call you on the phone. They're going to try to pull you away. They're going to try to manipulate you. They're going to try to deceive you. He says, my goal for you as a church is that you would be stable. You would be strong. You would be able to be anchored in truth, not carried away. I mean, think about it for a second. Do you let your kid, you know, say, let's say you have a two-year-old, you know, he's just walking over, hobbling over to the, to the edge of the shore, and it's a rough current that day. Are you going to let him just wander out there? No, because he's going to get whopped all over the place. You're never going to find him. He's going to get sucked out and it's over. Why? Because he's not strong. Because he's not stable. Because he's not anchored. You get a, you get a strong, big, buff guy, and even then, you know, it's, it's hard enough to find. What he's saying is you be strong and you be anchored, and when the tides and the waves of attacks that come from false teachers are there, you will be able to stand strong. I'm praying for you as a church that you'll do that. I'm praying for you as a church, I mean. That you'll be a discerning church, that you will be anchored in the Word of God and you will hold fast to what is true. And be able to discern what is evil. And not be like children who are who vulnerable and gullible. Finally, he says that we are to be a loving church. A loving church. This is the fulfillment of what Jesus said. By this all men will know you're my disciples if you what? If you have love for one another. 
you love one another, you prove to be my disciples, he says. He says this in verse 15. He says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into all aspects into him. And he goes on to talk about how we as a body are to work together. And again, the end result is that we would build up each other in love. That what we do is from a loving heart, we have affection and compassion and care for each other. That we are unswervingly devoted to one another, not bickering and fighting and biting each other. He says, I want you to be a loving church. This is, this is, this is our goal. This is the reality. This is, what, this is the foundation that we're pursuing. These are the resources that we're using to get there. And these are the goals that we're striving to attain. Our Father, we've gone through a whirlwind this morning. It seems because your truth is so deep and wide and high. I want to thank you for never leaving us without a word. For always giving us direction and purpose and vision. For always setting for us an agenda. For always supplying all the resources that we ever need to build on the right foundation that you've set so that we can achieve the goals that you have for us. It is our deep heart's desire, longing, Father, for you to be glorified in the church and for our body here at Calvary Bible in Burbank to be healthy. And Lord, you're doing great things here. And we look forward to the year to come, 2002, when you're going to do so much more. Work in the hearts of these people here. Lord, and show them what you would have for them in the coming year. Show them where you want them to fellowship, where you want them to be involved, how they can give themselves away to you and be stewards of the, the precious, precious prize that you've entrusted to us as a result of your atonement through the use of our spiritual gifts for your glory and our edification. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.